packing up, leaving home, and moving to the to the fringe of Appalachia in an uh, institution of higher education that has this affinity to, uh, to understanding and serving Appalachia that people then become Appalachian. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. All right, welcome back. Appalachia Meets World. It's Will. And Neil. What's happening, my man? Hey, not 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 too busy actually lately, which is which is nice. How about you? Yeah, yeah. I I, I can't really say the same. Busy as ever, man, you know, trying to stay alive. <laughs> Keep my head above water down here, bro. Yeah, I feel you. Most days I feel like I'm drowning. These kids' schedules. I can't even imagine yours. Yeah, I guess when I say I'm not busy, that doesn't mean I'm not busy. I just right. get used to the routine, I guess. You just learn you you've just learned how to handle it extremely well. Yeah, yeah, you can <laughs> say that. I'll take it. I'll go in and ask you. I guess we already talked about it, but where are you from? Yeah, you know where I hold it down, man. Down here in the six oh six, baby. 606. Always six. Heck, I always like saying six oh six. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they're. Their number started with 606. It always makes me. Makes you see me that. Little, little, you see that 606. Day. See that 606 pop up on the phone. You're like, I'm answering this. <laughs> 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 this one is not getting denied. I am answering this call. Yeah, I guess you could always get the 606, go buy a cell phone in 606, and you could have it for life, right? Yeah, forever, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know how that works now. I mean, I guess you just have to buy your cell phone you know like you said get it at a dealer inside the 606 and i guess you get a 606 number i mean i've had mine for so long i don't i don't even know i don't even think about your life and i wanted to ask you something i I was talking to a buddy the other day i'll go give a shout out to fleming wesley and he uh he likes to rag me on on this If 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 that dude listens to our podcast i'm I, I'm excited. <laughs> well, <laughs> back in the day when I lived in Lexington, I, I went to this, you know, it was a, it was a cookout. It was a backyard party. And what do you do at backyard parties? You play games, right? Yeah. So the game ball. that I brought out, like, I don't know if it's an Appalachian thing. I, I don't know what it is, but you know, you know how Papa, he always carried a pocket knife. Oh, yeah. that, that was always big, right? As long as he has pants on. Yep. Uh, pocket. I, I think that might be an Appalachian thing. I don't know uh, Appalachian history, but um, I think that's a man thing. Maybe. I always, <laughs> I, always, I always carried a pocket knife. You know, I, I think I have one of Papaws. You know, I grew up with pocket knives. Yeah. I had one at this backyard party, and we were playing games, and so I introduced the game of stretch. Have you ever played stretch? <laughs> stretch? You've never played stretch? I have no idea. What Dad taught about, Dad taught me stretch, and I don't of know if it's an I, I don't know if it's an Appalachian game, but it's definitely a holler game. I mean, you probably learned it in the hills and the hollers. That's where I learned it. But I looked it up. Like I, he always makes fun of me for this game of stretch and gives me a hard time every. He brought it up the other day. You going to play I, stretch? I don't even know what the game is, but if well, let me let me explain. somebody with stretch. I mean, what? what? <laughs> let me explain it. So stretch, you and the person you're playing with stand probably I don't know a foot apart, and you have a knife, and you throw the knife in the ground next to your leg, 
And if it, wherever it sticks, the other person has to stretch their leg out to touch it, right? Oh, yeah. And so you have to stick it in the ground and you keep stretching out until one person falls over. And that's the game of stretch. Well, there ain't no way Fleming's winning that game. <laughs> and then you can throw it. And there are different variations. I actually looked it up. And so technically the game's called mumbly peg. Yeah. I, I've never heard mumbly of mumbly peg. Mumbly peg. <laughs> there, there, are, <laughs> there are different variations apparently. And mumbly peg is a little bit different where you, you try to throw it as close to your foot as possible, which can get a little dicey. Uh, yeah, admittedly so, but stretch is, I guess, a variation of that. So I don't know why I get such a hard time about bringing up stretch and wanting to play it at this game, but <laughs> apparently it's just one uh, one more stereotype that, that I can be made fun of. Yeah, whatever, man. <laughs> I wouldn't take anything off Fleming. I hope he calls me. I'm going to tell him about stretch. <laughs> I, I did want to bring up stretch because we got a guest on tonight that is a professor of Appalachian studies, Dr. Chad Berry. I just wanted to bring up, you know, kind of the history of, of uh, history of Appalachia, but, but things that you learn over your course of your childhood. And, and we've talked about this before. We talked about it with the last guest about not learning things in school in regards to your local history. Did you ever learn anything in regards to Appalachia at school? No, not not that I can remember, honestly. No, I, I, mean, I didn't that's... either. I mean, we we you know we learned about canning, we learned about foods from mom, grandmother, and and you know we learned different things like that, but nothing in school. I think we took it the took it for granted, maybe if we learned it in school and just kind of bypassed it, possibly, but just because it was second nature to us, I guess, in the midst of it, I don't know, maybe. But yeah, there's all kinds of local history that I'm sure um, this upcoming guest will, uh, you know, shed a light on. I'm pretty certain he will not talk about stretch though. Yeah. I don't think he'll bring, I don't think he probably won't bring it up. <laughs> I'm going to ask you though. I'm going to ask you what games he played in the backyard <laughs> at his college parties. <laughs> no, but I can, man, I, I can remember, I think that's something that should be introducing. I've seen curriculum out there for Appalachia in K through 12, Appalachia studies in K through 12, but obviously it wasn't taught in our school. We went on field trips and I know we never went to the Appalachian museum. I think it's in Tennessee, yeah. but why brings a great question tomorrow. Yeah. I, I don't know, but uh, I guess that's a segue into this, this episode we will talk to Dr. Chad Berry and learn a little bit more about Appalachian studies and an essay that he wrote. It's called Appalachia, Who Cares and So What? It's part of his um, <laughs> syllabus for one of his courses, but uh, it's something we can talk about as well. Yeah, sounds good. Let's get him on here. All right, let's go. All right, we have on the show Dr. Barry, Dr. Chad Barry. He is the Vice President for Alumni Communications and Philanthropy at Berea College. He's also the good professorship in Appalachian Studies and a professor of history. And he's been at Berea since 2006, uh, where he started as the, as the director of the Lo Loyal Jones Appalachian Center. So Dr. Barry, or can I call you Chad? Please. Yeah, Chad, we, um, we, 
we are thrilled to have you on the show. You have so much, you know, knowledge and history of Appalachia, and we're just happy and, and honored that you would take the time to, to be on this episode. Absolutely. It's an honor. <laughs> we appreciate that, too. We can just dive into it. Well, one of the first things I wanted to ask is something that we ask all our guests uh, just to kind of kick it off. And, and we spoke before, but one of the reasons why we had this podcast was to kind of compare, you know, I've worked all over and there's, I've seen similarities in everywhere I've worked with where I grew up, more similarities than differences. We kind of just started this podcast to compare our region to other regions, even sub-regions throughout Appalachia, just to compare and contrast and see, you know, what the similarities are. But as part of that, you know, Appalachia is big on tradition. My family, Neil and I's family, we're big on tradition. One of our traditions is we have appetizers uh, at the holidays, huge spread of appetizers. We have more appetizers than the actual meal. So just to kick it off, uh, this is something we ask all our guests, but do you have a favorite appetizer or a holiday dish? Favorite appetizer? I would probably say uh, when I was in graduate school, I worked with a, a Korean-American woman who grew up in Hawaii. And actually, she was friends with Bette Midler, childhood friends, because they were neighbors. And except they called, everyone called her Betty Midler. And Betty Midler would always come over to April's house because her mother was a great Korean cook. And, um, you know, it was just funny. And so she, April gave me this recipe for Korean chicken wings that is, um, real, is really good. And uh, whenever I take them anywhere, they're, um, I bet I usually so different myself, though. I usually save three or four, you know, because I know I won't get anything but a dirty plate at the end after about 20 minutes. But it's not because of my cooking, it's all because of April's. So, Korean <laughs> hot chicken wings are my nice. That is definitely the first Korean hot chicken wing answer we've had. I wanted to go ahead and just dive in. I know you've written, uh, authored, edited, co edited four books, one, one of those being studying Appalachian studies, which I think haven't read it obviously, but would be a great read for anybody in the Appalachian re region. But one of the things I wanted to ask you is just kind of dive into it. What, what it, just for our listeners, what is Appalachian studies? And from your perspective, why is it so important for the region? And one of the reasons why I asked that we had, we had a guest on previously from West Virginia who talked about growing up in West Virginia never learned about Bill Withers, never learned about Katherine Johnson, never learned about Brees Pancake, the, these, you know, culturally diverse individuals that also grew up in West Virginia, never learned about Blair Mountain, you know, one of the largest labor uprisings in U.S. history, the Battle of Blair Mountain, never learned about it in school. And I was the same. I never learned about Appalachian history in school. So from your perspective, why, what is Appalachian studies and why is it so important uh, for the region? Well, I'm a historian. I think you answered your question just with that um, statement, Will. Yeah. But as a historian, you know, I think I was trained to help uncover the silences of the past. There are many silences of the past. And uh, your, your introductory question there, as I said, just answered that question about those folks who go unknown. I think in the last year we've discovered with the pandemic around racial injustice, that um, there's that so many adults have been robbed by their K-12 education, even their post-secondary educations, because it wasn't inclusive. 
So Appalachian Studies seeks to uh, not just uncover the silences of the past because that's just a more narrow historical approach, but it seeks to be an inclusive piece of inquiry around a people and a region. And I think that's, we should celebrate that. But one of the things that we try to do in studying Appalachian studies is not to uh, navel gaze, not to think that um, this place is unlike any other, that there are so many connections and similarities, as you also pointed out, to other regions around this country and indeed around the world. Yeah, that, that, that's a great answer, which kind of gets me to my next point. One of the reasons that kind of drew me to to having you on the show was I read an essay that you wrote. And I actually think you probably wrote it for one of your courses. It was kind of like a syllabus or an addition to the syllabus, maybe. But uh, it, it's called Appalachia, Who Cares and So What? And for any, any of our listeners, it, it's a short read, but it has so much in it in regards to just, I think you call it the creation of Appalachia or it, the brief, it gives like a brief synopsis of the history of the creation of Appalachia and how, how we have been perceived throughout our history. And I, I just think it's a really cool read, a really great read. I, I loved it. And, and there's so much in it for such a short essay. But to that point, I, I, I think you referred in it to your students that if they come to school there at Berea, then they should consider themselves Appalachian. So I wanted to ask you, what, how do you define Appalachian and, and, you know, what makes someone Appalachian in your mind? Well, I think the worst, you know, going back to the answer that I just gave a minute ago, if, uh, if Appalachian studies become so insular and narrow, uh, I think I use the word navel gazing, that's problematic. Similarly, if we try to put, um, um, a definition of citizenship on defining an Appalachian, that's also problematic. So I sometimes say, uh, you know, if your last name is Gilbert and you've been in the region for 10 or 12 generations, then you're certainly Appalachian. But also if your last name is Gonzalez and you've been in the region for two days, then I think pretty strongly that you're Appalachian too. And so I have this wide inclusive notion of Appalachian. There's no, uh, there shouldn't be, and there is no Appalachian identity card. And I would, I, and I think other scholars of Appalachia would resist that. As I say in that piece, which was written for a general studies class here at Berea, you know, if I have a Ghanaian or Zimbabwean or, um, a person from Kazakhstan, and they're studying, they land in an Appalachian studies course. Um, they, you know, they can be Appalachian for four years while they're living and studying in this region. And it's going to, in my view, help them understand their own place from which they come. The great Eudora Welty said that uh, one place understood well helps us know all places better. And I just really believe that the late great Eudora Welty was right when she wrote that. Yeah, that that's a tremendous point and a great segue into to my next question. Because you write throughout the essay that learning about the local will help you learn more about the global and, and vice versa. 
And, and you also make the point very significantly in the end that place matters. You know, we kind of ground our podcast on place and perspective. We think it's very important. And just to you, you know, why does place matter specifically in Appalachia and specifically in this age of globalization? Well, I think um, so for so long, the last two decades or so, we've been connecting people and especially places and goods in this increasingly globalized society in which we live. We've been connecting all those so closely so that if, if something happens in Taiwan, which um, makes the computer chips for our Ford F-150 made in Louisville, Kentucky, then suddenly we can't buy our beloved Ford F-150 because they can't get the chips to make it. Um, that's just one recent example. But we hear about all these global things. And I think we saw that during the pandemic, that a, a, a global pandemic could be so virulent because of all the movement of, of people and goods. But I think there's a countervailing force that we don't often notice, and that's the local. And uh, I, I want to be a voice. I don't want to sound um, antiquarian or reactionary against the global because I've been lucky enough to travel to 50 or 60 countries. But what that globalized travel has taught me is the importance of local, whether it's in Appalachia or whether it's in South Africa or whatever, or Cuba. The, the local is an equal an important force to the global. And sometimes people have called it the global, which is probably the best kind of perspective because you're, 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 you're a globalized citizen. You know what's going on right now, for example, in Northern Ireland, and yet you are knowledgeable enough to make connections about the relationship in Northern Ireland to England as connected and similar to the relationship of Appalachia to the United States. Another great point. I, I uh, my brother and I, Neil, he never left Appalachia. So he left when he went to college, but he moved right back and has always been in Appalachia. And we we talk about this in our podcast. But I, uh, after graduating high school, I guess, left Appalachia and have, haven't been back since. But I still call it home. Uh, but you know, you write in your essay that leaving your home, you can learn more about your home that, you know, that's the best thing to do in regards to learning about your home. Can you talk about that a little bit? Or have you, as you, as you have traveled throughout these countries, as you have left your own home, have you learned more about your, I guess, your local or your home? I, I think um, I see this. That's a great question, Will. I see this all the time at, at Berea when we get a student from the mountains. Um, they don't typically identify at all with the notion or the word Appalachian. They're like, well, they kind of look at you funny when they're, they, they tend to resist this Appalachian identity because it's so much more localized. It might be Mud Creek or it might be Pike County or something, but it's not Appalachian. It's only by packing up, leaving home and moving to the, to the fringe of Appalachia in an uh, institution of higher education that has this affinity to up to understanding and serving Appalachia that people then become Appalachian. 
Trent Alexander and I wrote a, an article, um, gosh, now a long time ago, but we noticed in the 2000 census that people went around and uh, knocked on doors and said, hey, Will, um, who, what kind of ethnic background are you? And they discovered, I think, that at that time, Appalachian was like uh, the second or third most popular response after, I think it's been a while, but I think number one was Cajun. And so we, uh, Trent and I tried to plot where the people were living who responded Appalachian. And perhaps not surprising, the overwhelming majority of those who identified themselves as Appalachian were not living in Appalachia. Wow, that's interesting. And what that suggests is it's only by leaving your home that you, in longing for it, pining for it, you seek to understand it even more. And maybe you do get this. No longer are you somebody from Mud Creek when the census person asks you, you're suddenly an Appalachian. I, and I think that's telling. So that I tell my students that it's precisely because I've been able to travel around the world um, and live in other places where I've made the most connections to what I know or thought I knew about Appalachia, whether I'm in, in Western Ukraine or Western Cuba or you know Scotland or, or uh, even in a place like China. Yeah, I, and I, I've talked about this with my brother before. Where, wherever I go, the places that I work, I've definitely called myself Appalachian much more after I left. But the people that I work with get tired of me talking about Appalachia because that's all I want to talk about <laughs> when I leave. Yeah, I definitely, I, I don't think I ever did refer to myself as Appalachian before I left. That, that's, a, that's an extremely uh, good point. I, I uh, wanted to dive a little bit into the history just the creation, you, you talk about the, the construction of Appalachia, of how it was defined a long time ago by cartographers as a different word, but it, it was kind of created more by outsiders, or at least the perceptions of Appalachia were created. And you talk about it, I think you referred to Appalachia being created around difference. Um, can you talk about that, about that just a little bit and, and explain what you meant by that? Well, we have about four days for this answer. Is that right, Will? <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, right. I know. You, you better have. You better. We better warn your um, <laughs> listeners that this is going to be a doozy of an answer, <laughs> uh, because I could teach an entire semester uh, course around that question. But I, I like to start off provocatively by reminding people that Appalachia doesn't really exist. Uh, in, this, in the same way that Iowa or New Hampshire don't really exist. Some powerful person or powerful people at one point took a Sharpie to a map and, uh, you know, drew a square rectangle and called it out Iowa. In a similar way that powerful people took a Sharpie to a map and called it Appalachia, except a lot of different people took Sharpies to the map. So there's a lot of disagreement about what, where Appalachia is as opposed to Iowa, because when you pass into Iowa, there's a sign that says, welcome to Iowa. Um, my point being that Appalachia is an idea. It's a creation, it's a construction. Uh, it's a social and cultural construction. It's an invention that powerful people have come up with. One of those powerful people was a president of Bria College around the turn of the 20th century. 
who got on a horse from Berea and went over east into the next county, Jackson County, and discovered our contemporary ancestors, he called them. Um, precisely at the time when uh, the country was reeling from all of this immigration from uh, Eastern and Southern Europe and East Asia. And he found our, you know, contemporary, our contemporary ancestors, you know what he meant. He meant white Anglo-Saxon Protestant types reportedly, reputedly, um, you know, hanging out, singing ballads that had long gone extinct in the British Isles. So Appalachia was created with a purpose in mind. There's a reason for the invention, creation, construction. There was a reason for it. And there were several different reasons, whether you could discover your contemporary ancestors, whether you wanted to feel good about yourself, that you didn't live like these poor hillbilly people down in uh, Eastern Kentucky, or whether you were a person like Will Warren, who had to leave the region or left the region, and you see your strong identity as being closely connected to this, and, and you, you long and lament and yearn for, I guess, maybe the wisdom of generations of people who combined made Will really what he is and what he seeks to be. So there's often there's this negative notion and there's this positive notion in different people. And sometimes it's in the same person that you think, oh, my gosh, I should go to Berea and I could buy one of these authentic Appalachian quilts. I, I could hang it on the, you don't use it on the bed because we've got an electric blanket for God's sakes and, and central heat. But we could hang it on the back of the wall behind the sofa in the living room and it would give us a conversation piece to talk about when the Jones come over. Or, you know, we could continue on down US 25 to get to that authentic Smoky Mountain cabin down in Gatlinburg for a week long vacation. We hope it has indoor plumbing and maybe a hot tub, uh, but that'll give us a, a meaningful, authentic Appalachian experience. But along the way, boy, we noticed some, maybe we had to divert off I-75 uh, because of a wreck and we drive through Eastern Kentucky and we discover an entirely different kind of Appalachia there. And maybe we, we can't resist wanting to lock the doors because, and hoping that the car doesn't break down because we've seen some of those films about Appalachia. <laughs> right. So my point is in a nutshell that Appalachia serves a function for this country. It serves yeah. a function. And it's to make people feel good about themselves or that they've made it and they're not like these poor people or that in climbing up the economic rungs of the ladder, they realize their life has become rather vacuous. And so they, they look at, at these Appalachian folk and think, I wish I could live as traditional and as rooted to kith and kin as they are. And then Appalachian culture becomes a commodity. But had Appalachia not been invented, we would have invented some other place and people to serve that function, just as there is an Appalachia, I tell my students, in every country I've ever been to. Yeah, that's a, re that's a really good point and kind of gets into, you know, the neg negative stereotypes and, and how you talk about powerful people or how others, outsiders, have kind of created those negative stereotypes. And, and really, you know, uh, Appalachia 
it's thought of as this monolith, this, this white, everyone thinks the same monolithic uh, culture. Everyone talks the same. Everyone thinks the same. Everyone's backwards a little bit, but, but really, you know, we started as, as with native Americans, with, with Africans, with white people of, of several different ethnicities all throughout Appalachia. So I guess I'm getting back to the negative, negative stereotypes or how they started and, you know, do you think that isolation has played a large part in those negative stereotypes or um, and, and, and the fact that they've persisted for so long? Or, or why do you think they continue to persist to this day? I, I know you said that they created it for a purpose, but why do you think even in film and in, in, in media today, why they continue to persist? Well, they continue to persist, be not because of isolation, it seems to me. I, I and other scholars of Appalachia tend to bristle at the notion of isolation because as you point out, this, this society that was always a tri-racial one with African, indigenous and European people all mixing and living among one another, some by choice and some uh, by lack of choice. But regardless, it was always a, um, a tri-racial place. So these negative stereotypes persist precisely because uh, this country the media, uh, elite, cultural, um, culturally powerful people teach us to think in particular ways about the people who live in Appalachia, 28 million people who live in a very variable place. And what, it, what our responsibility is, both as Americans and even as Appalachian folk, is to unlearn what we think we know about this region. We have to unlearn it because every single day, practically, we are bombarded with, with notions. Many of them are negative, And I think we pay attention more to the negative ones, but we don't attune ourselves even to the positive ones, which are also stereotypes. Positive, I use in quotes. Yeah. They're also stereotypes. That's something that you tell your students right in the beginning that in order to learn about Appalachian studies, you have first have to unlearn what you thought you knew about Appalachia. Yes. And I think the first step in unlearning is to become mindful. Wow. I never thought about that movie and the way John Insko has just published a book on Appalachian movies. And those are often powerful teaching tools for students because you know, they, they tend to kind of rather mindlessly digest a film, not thinking of it as a text that says powerful things about the subject matter. So yeah. you have to become mindful of it. You were part of or you were interviewed in the documentary Hillbilly, if I'm, if I'm correct. Uh, That's right. That, that was a pretty powerful movie in regards to understanding or learning about the diversity in Appalachia. Isn't it a great film? It is, yeah. I liked it. I guess that's aside from the point, but I, I, uh, I, want, I want to talk about Berea in a minute, but first I wanted to ask you, you know, you, you, you've already said a, a lot of things that people were probably not aware of in regards to Appalachia, but is there, what, what one thing would you tell people about Appalachia that many people might not know? Is there one thing at the top of your mind that you would, you would suggest? Oh my gosh, Will, nobody's ever asked me that, but I, I would uh, maybe say a couple things briefly. Sure. One is there's not just one Appalachia, there are many Appalachias, first of all. 
Uh, and secondly, I think I often say that in order to have the best kind of understanding, you have to use your head and you also have to use your heart uh, because it gives maybe the most holistic understanding. So my head might say, well, you know, there's really nothing or very little that's distinctive or unique about Appalachia because there are Appalachias all over. Every country has an Appalachia. They just don't call it Appalachia, of course, but it serves often the people in the place serve the same similar function as, as Appalachia does here. But my heart says, oh, no, Barry, there's definitely no place like the people in the region here. And I think that gives um, that gives an interesting tension for understanding this place, not in isolation, but rather in in connection with people and places like it all around the world. Very interesting answer. Like I said, you've been at Berea since 2006, and we spoke a little bit before the interview started, but you really uh, love the college. And, and um, for the listeners that don't know, Berea plays uh, an extremely important role in Appalachia, especially in central Kentucky, where I'm from. Um, in regards to what they, the service that they do for the region, but also in regards to the students that come there, you know, it's a tuition free school, you have to work while you're there, but especially for those first generation college students coming from Appalachia that may not be able to afford college, it, it you know, it's extremely important school and an import, important for the region, but uh, can you talk a little bit about the importance or kind of the history behind Berea or why you uh, love it so much. I, I know you also talk about talk to your students about inspiring them to make a difference in the region. Is that from your own personal belief or is that kind of spurned out of uh, you being at Berea and what they believe as well? Well, let me take the first part first. Okay. <laughs> and that's about Berea. So I often say, imagine the audacity and the courage of Berea's founder, Reverend John G. Fee, who is a young seminary graduate, decided that he his vision for his life would be to strive to enact the gospels here on earth. So he and uh, his wife and other early Bereans sought to create an institution of, of education expressly to educate black and white, female and male, living and learning together in a state in which it was legal for one human being to own another six years before the onslaught of the Civil War in which 620,000 people would ultimately perish. Imagine that courage and the audacity of that vision where you and your family were run out of town a couple of dozen times for having this belief and beaten for it and having to close the institution with the onset of the Civil War, but then immediately going over to Camp Nelson where uh, freed people of color, color were gathering, and then you, were edu you sought to educate them, to teach them one of the most powerful things that any human can know to do, and that is to read. And then coming back to Berea, reopening the institution, and bringing those freed people of color and white folk uh, from the surrounding areas 
and building this institution up where black, white, female and male could live and learn together. That is such, I mean, how many visions that are 160 plus years old do you know of, can you think of that are, that is every bit as relevant today as it was in 1855? Yeah. They're not, I can't think of that many. I always ask my students that and we can't think of many. So that idea of Berea, even when the state of Kentucky uh, prohibited it from educating black and white together, it carried on that service and commitment becoming a, a, an all white institution by state law between 1908 and 1950, when it was again permitted to educate black and white together. But it then reached out after, after the, what we call the day law was passed by the legislature in 1904, it reached out to serve the people, white folk uh, of Appalachia, and that tradition has carried on today. It continues to carry on today. We serve not just students at Berea, but we also seek to serve communities throughout Appalachian Kentucky. We serve 50,000 students today through Partners for Education, trying to educate them and make their lives more whole and complete through strong, robust education in places like Knox County, Kentucky, or Bell County, Kentucky, where you grew up. So, if, you know, Appalachia continues to be a, a persistently underserved place, Central Appalachia especially. And so I, I implore and seek to inspire our students, whether they're from Zimbabwe or Belfry, to go back and think about devoting their their career and their vocation to learning from and serving the people of Appalachia. That's a that's an excellent answer. I uh, I, I know some people I graduated with just thought of Berea as this liberal small liberal arts college in, in in Kentucky, but there's so much more to its history and so much more to its importance, especially for our region. I, I just wanted to hear you talk about it a, a little bit, especially, you know, we appreciate definitely what you do there and what Berea does for the, for the area. But a more important question is, what's your favorite spot in Berea? I'm assuming you either live in the city or somewhere in the vicinity. <laughs> do you have a favorite spot or a favorite eating establishment uh, in Berea? You know, my favorite spot is probably my front porch. <laughs> um, you can sometimes get pretty good eating there. Uh, yes, uh, with Korean hot wings. I mean, you can't go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> My grandmother, you know, was a great. Oh, she was a uh, known far and wide for her chicken and dumplings. So I seek to continue that tradition. Nice. But I live out in the country. I live um, within. I live kind of in the cattle country of Madison County, where there's you know fifteen hundred head of cattle surrounding us. <laughs> but we can see Joe's Lake Knob uh, from our kitchen window, which is the first kind of foothill of, uh, of the region. Nice. I live, you know, my kids think it, I live in the country. I live on one of the entering suburbs of Cleveland. So they consider it the country. And I, I introduced them to the country when we went back to Kentucky and now they realize that they don't necessarily live in the country, but, uh, they like to think of it as that. <laughs> I, you know, uh, I, I, I studied, I should say, Will, I was just driving through Cleveland um, 
Saturday because we were coming back from the Adirondacks where our daughter and son-in-law live, which, by the way, has so many similarities to Appalachia. It's really kind of, you know, northern Appalachia. Yeah. But I was thinking about this um, furniture store in Cleveland uh, in the post-war period when so many people from Appalachia were living up in Cleveland, especially people from East Tennessee. There were so many people there that the this furniture store in Cleveland um, advertised in the Cock County, Tennessee newspaper because they realized that so many people were living in Cleveland there, taking their hometown newspaper, having it sent, mailed up to them in Cleveland. And that was a way that this furniture store could get the business of all the tennis, East Tennesseans who were living in Cleveland. So oh, that's very neat. Really neat story. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Cincinnati is just flush with people that call themselves Appalachians. And that's where they have the Appalachian Festival in Cincinnati, which is very interesting to me. And, yeah. and, and on, on, on the you know inverse of that, so many people moved into Appalachia from outside for work uh, originally. You know, obviously, I'm speaking to the choir here, but you know, it, people don't realize that, that people move from all over into Appalachia just for the work, for whether it be in the coal mines and in the timber industry or whatever. There were so many jobs here that people, you know, moved all over. And then, then of course, when coal went bad and everything else, people started moving north. But yeah, it's very, that's very cool. My, my dear friend, uh, Dr. William Turner, grew up in Lynch, Kentucky. You probably know where Lynch is. Yep. Um, and he is uh, a long, um, has had a long career as a scholar of especially black Appalachian folk himself. He himself is uh, African-American and Bill is um, just about to publish something of a memoir of uh, that place. And it's called the Harlan Renaissance. West Virginia University Press is publishing. I think it will be released in October. And that, again, will be an important antidote to thinking that Appalachia is just a white place and blithely ignoring the diversity that was historic to the place and continues today. Yeah, Lynch has a long history of, of diversity, uh, which people from outside the region don't realize. I uh, wanted to end with the question that we ask everyone. And we, we talked about this a little bit of where you are originally from, but I wanted to hear from you. Uh, like I said, we asked this of everyone, but where do you call home and, and why do you call it home? What makes it unique for you? Uh, I, I think I have two home, well, maybe three homes. Um, well, maybe four, <laughs> I keep thinking about it. Uh, I'm always really at home in Africa because I, in addition to studying Appalachia, I always study Africa. And especially when I'm in a rural area in Africa, that is home to me because there are so many connections to Appalachia. That would be one home. Second home would be wherever my head rests at night. Um, thirdly, um, a deep, deep, deep spiritual home would be um, the community in uh, Southern Middle Tennessee where my grandparents, my paternal grandparents moved out of in 1947 to move north to Indiana. But that spiritual home and the, the foundations of previous homes or log cabins and the graveyards, cemeteries, the churches are a deep, deep spiritual home to me. And then fourthly, I would say the home 
that means a great deal to me would be in East Tennessee where previous grandparents lived in and moved out of as they continued moving west toward that third home that I just described in middle, Southern Middle Tennessee. So I probably have four homes. Maybe I'd say fifth one might be the Scottish borders where uh, I also have familial connections. I'll contribute to the identity I have of, of who makes me who I am. That's, that's such a great answer. I, uh, it's always interesting to hear people uh, give that answer because not everyone we have on here is from Appalachia. A lot of people are from outside the region and, and they, they give different answers, but it always is interesting to hear why they consider it home. And, and I've said on here before, as soon as I cross, especially from Cleveland, as soon as I cross that bridge and see that Kentucky sign, I always get this uh, kind of relief or, or I, I call it relief, but this tension off my shoulders, it always feels, feels like that I'm home, especially when I get to the mountains. I wrote a book uh, on uh, that out migration and that historic period between uh, really the 20th century out migration of millions of people from the mountains and from the south who moved north and west. And I cannot tell you to hear you say that today in 2021 connects me to all those memories of talking to people who made that trip to places like Cleveland after World War II and always had that feeling of jubilation and comfort upon seeing that river and crossing that bridge and getting back in closer to home. Yeah, comfort. That's a good word. It is comfort. It's peace. It's serenity. It's connection. I think uh, Dwight Yoakam sings about that. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. That, that's such a that's such a great ending. I uh, like you said, we could talk for five, 10, 15 days on on this same subject, and I don't think we could accomplish uh, you know all the knowledge and all the wealth of information that's really packed in this short amount of time, but. I, I appreciate you being on the episode and, and it was great to hear your perspective and, and definitely an honor to have you on. Thank you, Will. May I close with one of my friends and colleagues, um, the words from Silas House? Definitely. Uh, so Silas writes, you cannot know a place without loving it and hating it and feeling everything in between. You cannot understand a complex people by only looking at data. Something inside you has to crack to let in the light so your eyes and brain and heart can adjust properly. Great ending. Perfect, perfect, perfect ending for this episode. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Will. All right, Neil. What a stellar guest, and obviously we could have talked to him for a long time and downloaded all the information, the history that he knows about the Appalachia region. Yeah, pretty incredible. Kind of wish I was part of his class. Maybe I, he could really help me, I'm sure. <laughs> Learn a little bit more about your own region? Yeah, for real. I mean, yeah. uh, now, you know, what, there's a, what a wealth of knowledge there. Yeah, you know, I like what he said during the interview about before you can learn about Appalachia, you'll first have to unlearn what you think you know about Appalachia. I just thought that was a good point. I mean, especially, 
you know, people that aren't from the region that are getting into Appalachian studies, you know, they already have these preconceived notions of what, what they think Appalachia is. But even, even us going into learning more about the region, a lot of the things we would have to unlearn just to learn. Yeah. I mean, I guess we would, we would uh, have to dive deeper into what we were actually talking about. Uh, like I said in the beginning, I think some things just come second nature to us. You talked about things that we learned from mom, but as far as Appalachian studies, I mean, what a, what a great benefit it would have been to have uh, Chad as a, as a teacher growing up. You know, obviously he teaches at Berea, which in and of itself is, is great for our region in Eastern Kentucky, but just the Appalachian region in general. I know yes. the App- Appalachian studies, I don't think we mentioned in the episode, but kind of originated out of conversation at Berea back in the day. I read that one of the presidents back in the day at Berea was talking about all the nonsense that was being written about the region. And so that kind of introduced the idea of Appalachian studies which is kind of cool. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, So just as a reference point, (laughs) Berea was founded in 1855. The university of Kentucky was founded in 1865. So Berea has actually uh, been in existence longer than the university of Kentucky. So that's pretty interesting. Very cool. And, And they do some great things for the region, like I said, but shall I mention that Georgetown college has been, uh, was founded, chartered in 1829. So of course, you know, it's over. Um, we we are a little bit more established. <laughs> I, I kind of wanted to dive into of place tonight, if if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, go ahead. And kind of to the point of yeah. what what Chad was talking about uh, of paying more attention to local, but also you know learning about the local, you can apply it to the global and vice versa. Uh, this week. I was uh, watching the Olympics with my kids <laughs> and um, my daughter, I, I think it was water polo or some Olympic sport that you only watch once every four years. Right. And, uh, Japan was playing the U.S. and my, two of my kids were USA, USA, you know, they were chanting. And my other kid start, was cheering for Japan. And it just kind of struck me. And, and one, I know she was just doing it just to – aggravate my son but I, I it just kind of sh- took me aback I, I in a weird way kind of upset me that she would cheer for another nation over you know, another country over the U.S. but but it just made me think uh, are our kids is this such a global society today's that our kids don't have a connection to place like like we did especially the U.S. I don't know, though, to your point, I, I, I certainly hope not. I mean, I hope that uh, globalization or the, the world has gotten smaller in a sense as we've completely lost or abandoned uh, place. Um, I know your kids will be grounded in that um, and, you know, hope that my kids are as well. But, you know, to your point, that's she's 10, 11 years old thinking in that manner but you know like you said it's probably mostly to aggravate her brother yeah uh, i mean but, I, I know that's what it was but even just hearing it it made me want to push just the history of how we grew up 
just allow her to learn a little bit about the local so so she can learn about the global and vice versa i personally think you should have pulled out your usa flag and ran around the house just to try to beat it into her (laughs) yeah the more you push i've realized that worse it gets yeah doesn't work that way maybe maybe ripped your shirt off and showed her the star spangled banner tattoo you have on your neck (laughs) (laughs) but yeah anyway i I just wanted to be in that of place just i you know i think we talked about it at the beginning of this episode the importance of introducing history culture uh at a much younger age uh you, you know in k through 12 uh, as opposed to learning about it later in life. Yeah. Don't necessarily, if you're growing up in the Appalachian region, like my kids, it, you know, you don't need to wait till you're uh, 21, 22 years old, taking Appalachian studies to, to, to get the gist of it. Um, it's way, hope, way too long. Yeah. I, and I hope we don't lose uh, the traditions of, uh, you know, parents passing it down to their children. You know, we learn how to, shuck corn, break beans, can, whatever, from our parents, from our grandparents. And I hope that's a tradition that continues to be passed down, you know, generation after generation. And I hope we don't forget that. Yeah. Amen. I, I, I wanted to point out, we haven't mentioned this the last couple of episodes, but, you know, if you like what you're hearing, if you have any, if you have any thoughts, send us an email, check us out on Facebook, on Instagram, Share it with somebody. Uh, Send it out there. Let them hear it too. Hey, if you're in the 606, look up Dr. Chad Berry. Check him out. Definitely. Appalachian Studies, Berea College. A lot of knowledge. Good stuff. All right. And like I always say, till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter. The air's getting now I'm facing down with a grin I've been in the city too long Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs Now I'm back up where I belong I'm in the mountains again